Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. All good martinis to close out the work week for you. Good, good, good across the board. And, uh, Jim, all of them are reason for us to be excited. The first two are really, really cool. Uh, first of all, let's start with... Um, Dan Crenshaw, the congressman from Texas, obviously well-known to a lot of people, especially on the right, got a lot of attention for his very uh, humble and and gracious response to being mocked by Pete Davidson on Saturday Night Live for wearing the eye patch because he lost an eye in service to this nation, I believe in Afghanistan. Um, But now, of course, he's a congressman from Texas. And Dan Crenshaw is one of those people who has the ability to actually distill issues pretty quickly. He doesn't need a long, meandering floor speech. He just needs a a little saunter down the congressional hallways, as it turns out. So here he is uh, with about a two-minute clip here just explaining what the Democrats are trying to do with a particular piece of legislation and why he believes the Democrats are being disingenuous with it and what the bill would actually do. This bill is called Protecting Americans with Preexisting Conditions Act of 2019. Not too bad. We all agree we should protect Americans with preexisting conditions. But is that what this bill is really about? Let's read the text. It's not that long. Beginning April 1st, the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Secretary of Treasury may not take any action to implement, enforce, or otherwise give effect to the guidance entitled State Relief and Empowerment Waivers. And the Secretaries may not promulgate any substantially similar guidance or rule. Okay. From the text, you can tell that it has nothing to do with pre-existing conditions. So what does this have to do with? What they're referring to are 1332 waivers. What are 1332 waivers? These are basically innovation waivers allowed under the ACA. A lot of states have used them so far. Uh, States like Maryland, Oregon, uh, Maine, Alaska. They use them for reinsurance programs. Because what we found out was that reinsurance programs are a much more efficient way to protect people with pre-existing conditions. Obamacare requires that you protect pre-existing conditions via the exchanges. Okay, well, when you do that, Premiums rise for everybody. That's why all of these states have actually changed their programs, if they've innovated. The Trump administration saw this, and they said, why don't we make it even more flexible for states? Why don't we give states even more flexibility to both protect people with pre-existing conditions, but do it in a way that doesn't raise everybody's premiums? So then you've got to ask yourself, why is this bill called the Protection for the People with Pre-Existing Conditions Act? Because this is the height of cynicism. This is the height of political cynicism. Democrats are trying to get people to think that we as Republicans are voting against this because they're trying to get people to think that we're against protection for pre-existing conditions. That's not true at all. We're against bad policy. And this is both bad policy and political cynicism. Jim, this is great for so many reasons. Not only is he calling attention to a bad piece of legislation and a misleading piece of legislation, which is really designed to demonize Republicans for opposing it, Dan Crenshaw is one of these people that we really ought to have more of, people who can actually distill and articulate a conservative policy position and then use social media and the power that it has to go viral to really get a message out. So this is excellent. It it is. And I remember having a conversation with another conservative blogger a few years ago, and we both kind of agree that there are a lot of Republican lawmakers and sometimes even, you know, a decent number of people who uh, are right of center pundits and folks like that. 
and they begin with a ninth or tenth step of a ten-step argument. <laughs> you know that there's kind of this assumption that you believe that uh, illegal immigration is bad, uh, or that the government spending should be limited, um, or that you know government debt is bad, um, or that you know that there is you know what a free market is and what it actually means. You know they they kind of they jump in assuming you already know the terminology and it works for your base. It works for people who are familiar with these issues and read the coverage and understand all this stuff. But for your average person who isn't that politically engaged, they're not going to get it. And so what, what is this democratic law, you know, law title designed to do? It's designed to, Oh, well, you know, it's about protecting people from existing conditions who, you know, who in their right mind could be opposed to that. Um, And by the way, this is not an original thing. People have argued about uh, the, the titles of bills being misleading uh, obviously, lawmakers love to try to connect it to something that's, you know, uh, motherhood and apple pie. You know, a lot of people might argue the Patriot Act is not particularly well, uh, uh, you know, well titled. You probably could also make an argument that um, you can always tell when someone has kind of wor- worked the words together to try to create some sort of cool acronym. The title of a bill doesn't necessarily tell you what's in it. And, you know, the fact that he's able to go in, read the text, and it sounds like, Greg, that's the entirety of the text. <laughs> they didn't even throw in an extra, a little paragraph in there about uh, pre-existing conditions. He explains why these this reinsurance is good, why it works, why it doesn't raise premiums. This is what you're supposed to do. This would be good advice for Republicans. Probably be good advice for anybody in politics. You know, pretend you're talking to your neighbor who hasn't followed this sort of thing. Pretend you talk to somebody who you like and who you respect, who you're not talking down to. Uh, you don't think of them as an idiot. You're not trying to whip up their passions. You're, you're just trying to say, look, here is what this legislation would do. Here's why it's a good idea or here's why it's a bad idea. And just lay it out. I still have faith in people. They will make the right decision um, and that they'll see through it. If you say, well, here's why it's demagogic. You'd figure a bill about pre-existing conditions would use the words pre-existing conditions. <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't is your first clue that, hey, this legislation isn't really what the title's about. And I love the fact that he can distill it. I mean, you watch uh, floor speeches or even questions of witnesses at committee hearings, and it takes uh, a lot of these people three, four, sometimes five minutes to even get to the question. And so the fact that you can get it into almost soundbite uh, type length here uh, while still getting all of your key points across is a skill that a lot of people still need to learn. And hopefully they're watching what Dan Crenshaw is doing. All right, let's move on to our Second great martini, Jim, and uh, we're going to quote a lot from Alapundit over at Hot Air here, as well as the Wall Street Journal, starting with Alapundit. They call it the ninja bomb. Do you have any idea how excited my 10-year-old self would have been to know that my country has a ninja bomb? Even now I'm a little woozy. Often military jargon is inscrutable to civilians, but not this time. The flying Ginsu is just what it sounds like. It's a small drone-fired missile, except instead of explosives, it's equipped with... Blades, six big knives shoot out the sides of this thing in the final seconds before impact, shredding everything in its path, including jihadi masterminds. I almost don't believe it's real. Ironically, it's gruesome as the outcome of a ninja bomb strike is apt to be. It's humane by the standards of air power. The point of the weapon is to limit collateral damage by removing bombs from the equation. The Obama administration reportedly began development of it in 2011, the same year Anwar al-Awlaki's 16-year-old son, an American citizen, was killed during a U.S. airstrike 
targeting a leader of al-Qaeda in Yemen. The Wall Street Journal claims that it was being eyed as a plan B for taking out bin Laden at his compound in residential Abbottabad. And then to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the Wall Street Journal talks about uh, one of the guys being responsible for the USS Cole being taken out, probably by one of these, although the military isn't specifying what munitions were used, uh, and also an Egyptian national who served as al-Qaeda's number two. But here's the very cool part, Jim, from the Wall Street Journal. One former U.S. official said the weapon addressed a long-standing right-seat-left-seat problem, suggesting it's theoretically possible to kill someone sitting in the passenger seat of a moving car, but not the driver. So, Jim, uh, this is so cool. First of all, Greg, let's think of this next time you yell, shotgun! Because <laughs> now the Pentagon can kill you without disrupting the drive for everyone else. Like, isn't that what something we've always wanted? Um, I remember there was an interesting... First of all, there are a lot of things that drive me bonkers. I guess I, guess I could just say that in general, Greg. There are a lot of things that drive me bonkers in uh, in discussions of these sorts of things. But among you know, these warmongering Americans and this idea of you know, this reckless disregard... Look. After a while, the U.S. defense uh, defense industry and the Pentagon kind of we we know how to make stuff blow up real good. We've been doing it for a really long time. We all remember the footage of the Persian Gulf War and the, the cameras on the front of the missile and flying in through the window of the building and uh, the bridge and the crosshairs. We we are really really good at blowing stuff up. But the problem is there are times when the mission and what you want to achieve doesn't require you to blow stuff up as big as possible. You want something more targeted. Um, the bad guys have figured this out, and we see this both, you know, when Israel is fighting with Hamas and Hezbollah, um, almost every conflict in, around the world, one side feels the temptation to hide amongst uh, civilians. That if you could use a school, that if you could use a mosque, if you can use some sort of location with lots of women and children around, with lots of civilians around, the United States military is going to hesitate because we are good and decent human beings who don't want to see innocent lives lost. Now, there are times we will make that kind of calculation and we'll decide, okay, the threat presented by this person we're targeting justifies the potential loss of life of all these other people around them. But again, we hate to be in that sort of situation. I remember somebody had made the argument as either a Twitter fight or somewhere on social media, somebody said, oh yeah, what kind of missile would Jesus use? You know, an argument to uh, be snide about how terrible and warmongering and violent the United States was. And someone had answered, honest to goodness, uh, in, a, in absolute seriousness, Jesus would use the new type of Hellfire missiles that is designed to minimize shrapnel and potential risk to people around the target. <laughs> and whether or not that really fits your idea of what Jesus would do, it did say something about the U.S. military and the Pentagon and all that, that they were trying to develop weapons that were less deadly, that were more precise, that were much more likely to be able to avoid hurting people who are not enemies of the United States, who are not someone who... Uh, we want to see killed or something like that. First of all, Ginsu missile. <laughs> what a wonderful name. What a wonderful idea. Um, and if you actually look at the sort of things coming out of DARPA, this is actually the philosophy of the United States. We don't want bigger, more powerful, more dangerous weapons. We want more precise weapons. We want an ability uh, to hurt the person we're targeting and only the person we're targeting. Um, and so as much as, you know, oh, my God, this is so cool and it's great. It sounds like something out of science fiction. By the way, DARP was doing some amazing stuff uh, that everyone should kind of check out every now and then. Anytime you're like, oh, God, how are we going to handle the, the problems of the future? Just take a look at DARPA. And it's like one part Star Trek, one part Q from Bond movies, um, and one part, you know, I believe. And it's not even that stuff from up at MIT where you keep watching videos every few months in which they have robots opening doors and stuff like that. <laughs> you put those two together, we've totally got Skynet, so. 
Um, that's the bad news part. But anyway, just a remarkable development. And again, um, I think indicates how much the United States has adapted to a very different form of warfare, one that is not going to be fought with tanks and on big battlefields and stuff like that, but often very much involves, you know, quiet surveillance from high up, high up in the air using these sorts of drones and trying to strike them and figuring out how do you take out someone who's a very dangerous individual who's trying to kill Americans without killing all the people around them. And hopefully we'll avoid tragedies and we'll avoid situations where we've had, you know, bombings of weddings uh, and other gatherings and things like that. We've ended up killing a lot of civilians and probably stirring up anti-American sentiment uh, in far off corners of the world. All right, Jim, let's move to our final good martini of the day and the week. We head over to Andrew Stiles and the Free Beacon uh, and Beto O'Rourke, the former Texas congressman, the darling of the media last year. Now the media is souring on him because they got so many other people to fall in love with. The news is just getting worse for Beto. The latest bit of bad news for Beto comes in the form of a Monmouth poll of New Hampshire primary voters. He's tied for sixth place along with Senators Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, winning the support of just 2% of poll respondents, which is getting dangerously close to statistically insignificant territory. It's also not much better than truly insignificant candidates, such as Congressman Tim Ryan, former Governor John Hickenlooper, and random Silicon Valley bro Andrew Yang, who are all polling at 1%. O'Rourke, who had at one point been polling as high as third place in national polls and occasionally cracking double digits, has also recently been surpassed by Senators Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, both in New Hampshire and in national surveys. The Monmouth poll showed Warren in fourth place at 8% ahead of Harris at 6%, but slightly trailing Pete Buttigieg at 9%. Former Vice President Joe Biden continues to dominate the field, pulling down 36% in New Hampshire, comfortably ahead of Bernie Sanders, who sits at 18%. So, uh, Jim, the sad trombone just continues here for Beto. Yeah, I think it, it, this, uh, this news today, this assessment from the, the Free Beacon, aligns well with something that was like the one you ever like really enjoy something but it also made you outraged at the exact same time um politico uh has a really detailed profile of beta o'rourke and you're like oh god not another one well <laughs> this one is about how beta o'rourke is actually an uh, not terribly accomplished individual greg no breaking news shocking uh that he has a history of falling upward and that he's coasting along on charisma and optimism and, and, you know, promises and all that kind of stuff that he never talks much about his life because his, you know, his past life and past accomplishments, because there really aren't that many. <laughs> and when he talks about his past life, he mostly talks about the Texas Senate race. It's as if he appeared out of nowhere. He came down from the heavens in early 2018. Um, now, those of us who remember anything about the 2018 uh, Senate campaign down in Texas, certainly, you know, when I wrote about it and a good portion of when, you know, right of center publications wrote about it, we didn't just discuss the DUI, although that was a big chunk of it. There, there, I said there was a room for an alternative narrative, uh, aside from the, you know, uh, Lone Star Jesus Golden Boy narrative that you were getting in most of these uh, mainstream media publications that basically painted Beta O'Rourke as a child of privilege. His father was a well-connected judge. Um, in addition to the DUI, people forget there was burglary. There was other uh, things, other uh, criminal charges that were generally dropped with minimal consequence. But you kind of wonder uh, if everybody would have gotten that kind of lenient assessment of it. Went to boarding school, uh, went to uh, fine schools, and then he, you know hung out in New York City. We all remember, we all saw the footage of the band and the skateboarding and all that kind of stuff. But you know he was. Not an enormously accomplished businessman. Tried starting up an alternative weekly newspaper. That kind of flopped. 
ended up doing web design for El Paso businesses, and that did reasonably well. Uh, a lot of folks know his net worth is in the neighborhood of $10 million. Uh, he married into a billionaire's family. Um, and a good portion of his El Paso City Council career was built on eminent domain and clearing out the barrio and helping out big, powerful developers, which doesn't really fit this golden boy who speaks for all of us. Hey, he might be Latino. Look at his first name uh, narrative that you were getting in a chunk of the media in 2018. So on the one hand, I'm loving this. I'm loving the fact that the, you know, the mainstream media has looked a little bit deeper and suddenly seen the exact same beta of work that was obvious to a whole bunch of us last year. But it only took a Demo- but only in a Democratic presidential primary did it spur them to look a little bit further. Um, and they're coming, lo and behold, it's so, you know, they, they write about it, Greg, as if it's cold fusion, as if it's just this amazing <laughs> discovery about Beto O'Rourke's life that no one has ever noticed before. Um, and like, on the one hand, like, I'm glad Politico wrote this. A little while we talked about Margaret Carlson, who had this, you know, just viciously funny, ripping Beto a new one, saying that every woman recognizes him as the worst boyfriend they've ever had, as this, you know, slacker who was self-involved and kind of a narcissist and, you know. Um, the Washington Post did that story in which he tried to get his wife to eat poop from the baby, and he claimed that it was guacamole. I mean, you, you look at this, you're like, what is wrong with this man? <laughs> you, know, um, you know, Greg, if you, I had done that, I think, you know, it would have ended either in divorce or attempted homicide. Um, and so the idea that there's, you know, the whole time in 2018, it's, oh, he's this charming, inspiring, he's Kennedy-esque. Yes, in his driving record. That's about it, though. Um, <laughs> So anyway, so I'm glad the mainstream media is catching up. I think Better Work is finding it tough. I'm going to make one cautionary note here, though, which is that I actually think as much as I'm enjoying the mainstream media piling on and whacking him around like a pinata, I I do kind of think that there's a he may be undersold at this point. We'll see how it goes. He looks ridiculous jumping up on the counters of diners in Iowa and stuff like that. But, you know, he's, he's doing the Obama playbook, hope, change, you know, sunny optimism, not too many specifics, you know, we're going to come together and work on that issue, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of Democrats like that. I think a lot of Democrats are looking for that. They don't want the details. They don't care if he doesn't have white policy, uh, white papers and detailed policy experience the way Elizabeth Warren does. He just kind of makes them feel good. And I, my sneaking suspicion is that that counts for a lot in a Democratic presidential primary. Old saying, Republicans want to fall in line, Democrats want to fall in love. Um, so I don't think, you know, don't don't put uh, dirt on the, the Beto O'Rourke 2020 campaign yet. Having said that, it is utterly delicious to watch him kind of, you know, flailing after having a hurricane force wind at his back in 2018. Uh, all of a sudden, reality is hitting him like a brick wall. Uh, actually, maybe I, I probably should avoid crashing metaphors when it comes to Beto <laughs> O'Rourke, right, Greg? Probably so. But I liked your uh, hope and change reference because that reminds me that when uh, some folks, usually on the right, of course, pointed out that Barack Obama had no executive experience back in 2008. What did he point to? The fact that he ran a campaign, his own. So Yeah, and there's, a, there's an actual <laughs> argument from a supporter who's traveling with Beto in this Politico article, which he says that, you know, it's not just that it's not the, 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 the his greatest accomplishment is not that he lost the Senate race, but how he lost the Senate race. Now, look, let's give a little bit of credit. Best campaign by a Democrat in, you know, 30 years in Texas. You know, only two point something percent, close to three percent. But mostly it's like he campaigned really hard and thus he's qualified to be president. No, no, that's not that's not the way it's supposed to work. But apparently that's why Democrats see these things. And if you're you know, if you make them feel good inside, that is what makes you qualified to be the next commander in chief of the United States. 
seat. Right. He forgot Obama rule number one, win your Senate seat by running against somebody who gets disqualified after they become the nominee. So uh, where's Jerry Ryan when Democrats need him? (laughs) Oh, Jim Garrity, you're out for a few days. We'll talk to you. What, Thursday? Yes. Speaking engagement. Can't say where. It's a secret mission. Uh, I'll have more to say when I get back. Everyone have fun without me. May you have lots of all good days and non, not too many all crazy or all bad days. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. David French and Alexander DeSanctis will be in for Jim the first few days of next week. If you love the podcast, please leave us a nice review over at iTunes. That helps us out a whole lot. Have a great weekend and tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.